Discussion. Um, today we're going to be talking about the issues and the state of the country as a whole, um, and not necessarily to reserve it to what happened this particular week, but also to speak to the broader sense of what's happening in the, in the country from the past 12 months and historically as well. Uh, just feel free to chip in and share your views. Uh, but I think where we can start off the conversation, and the country has been going through a lot of challenges, um, but also individually, I guess each of us have been affected quite severely or if not at all, uh, in terms of the pandemic and the lockdowns. And I think where to start off the conversation is to see how at least each of us have been impacted so far by the pandemic, um, especially the lockdowns, and maybe to see, understand and grasp how each of us can relate, um, if there's any common ground on that aspect. Uh, so maybe to start off, Tabang, I know you're based in Cape Town, but um, I don't know if, in terms of your job, your life, how have you been affected by the lockdown? Tabang? Uh, thanks, Peter. Yeah. Uh, from my side, uh, you know, like in, in my industry, like we were able to like move away from the office, uh, work, work from home, which like all things considered is a blessing really. So I'd say like it hasn't, I haven't been affected that much, although like I remember my family who've been affected, you know, so obviously you do have to, I sort of been affected in direct sort of uh, a direct impact. So yeah, it, yeah, uh, there's nothing much to add, man. Nothing much to add. That's cool. Um, I see your network is a bit on and off, so you're glitching here and there, but we can still catch what you're saying. Uh, Bethel, yeah, how have you to. been impacted in terms of the pandemic, um, especially on a personal level? Uh, thanks, Peter. Uh, I can say I've been in, uh, impacted very negatively uh, because early this year, on the 1st of, 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 of January, I was admitted. I contracted um, COVID-19. I was hospitalized by it. By the grace of God, uh, I've managed to, to survive. Um, and also in terms of the workplace, this pandemic it exposed how uh, the state, especially public entities, that they are not uh, so innovative because us also we are trying to work from home, but we'll be told that we are working from home without uh, tools of trades. You know, how do you work from home whereas you don't have a tools of trades? When I talk about tools of trades, I'm talking about laptop, I'm talking about data, you, you, you get what I'm saying. Therefore, uh, I find myself having a very uh, serious backlog. That's what I can say, a serious backlog without having tools of trades. Therefore, <laughs> it, it really impacted me very negatively. 
But as a young man, I'm trying to be innovative, but I must say generally so it impacted me negatively. Lastly, there's also issue of confidentiality and secrecy because you'll hear other colleagues of yours are COVID-19 positive and you were in contact with them, you are not being told. You, you, you get what I'm saying. So there are a lot of things that this pandemic have exposed us to. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Bertwell. I uh, appreciate that. Um, and I'm glad at least you've recovered and you're back to, to full health. Um, Polani, on your side, how have you been impacted on your personal level? Oh, yeah. Um, on my end, um, okay, from a nine-to-five perspective, um, for us, um, we were already working from home, you know, so um, we were well prepared before COVID actually um, became a norm in our country, you know. So um, credit goes out to the company for that, you know, it's as if they knew that this was coming, which was which was, which was quite crazy because we were so quick and, and, and so abrupt when things, when, when we moved to level five, like each and every person was working from home. And um, from an indirect perspective, my, I've lost uh, two family members uh, who were who were very dear to me. Um, I lost my 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 two grandparents, um, uh, who who really played a huge role in my life. And you know, it, it from an emotional standpoint, it it, it did hit me quite severely. Um, my other grandma, which is my dad's mother, she she had it and. She, was on the brink, you know. So for me, from a psychological standpoint, hence you've been seeing me running up and down that hill, you know, exercise is what I've been using to help me, you know, stay sane and not lose my mind, you know, because there were times where, especially when you are working from home, where you find yourself, you know, like you, you need some, you need to be out of, out of home, you know, instead of staying, in one place for such a long time, you know. So for me, exercise has really helped. Um, and um, from, I'd say from a, from from a, from a hustling standpoint, um, like from a, I'm a, I, I, I recently started a podcast, a sports podcast, and it, re it really is growing, you know, slowly but surely. And, you know, it's, it's also helped me big time in pursuing what I love because, you know, I've seen you, you love music, you know, and I still see you doing your thing. And so I was like inspired by what you were doing, you know, as much as you have a nine to five, but you do have a passion as well. And so that's what I've started doing during this period, you know, is pursuing what I love, you know, it, it will take quite some time, but it is fulfilling, you know. For me, that's what I want in my life, just fulfillment, and yeah, like um, that's pretty much it on my end, Peter. Thanks, Dolani. Um, buddy, let's probably come to you and you just share exactly what has been your experience with the pandemic on a personal level. Mbali? <coughs> yeah, so I'm from KZN originally, but I live in Johannesburg. So I haven't really been able to see my parents for the longest time. So that's really been sad on my end. And also, my parents are quite old and they've got like pre-existing conditions. So also just that stress and that fear of 
you know, something happening to them or them possibly contracting the virus. That's been very scary. And also just being this side, not being able to be there and help them as much as one would like to do for their parents at a time like this. Um, and I have been grateful and I'm grateful actually that they've now actually gotten to vaccinate. So that gives me a little bit of peace of mind. Um, but I also have been like exposed to the virus a number of times, like where friends have been ill and having moved to Johannesburg, like they live on their own. So they don't really have like, like help. So you find yourself like doing something that you know that possibly I could also be putting myself in danger. But in this situation, what else can this person do? You know, so it's just been a, a, a tricky time, but it's also just um, just reminded us like how we don't exist alone like we we are all there because we actually need to coexist and need to help one another um in terms of work our business or how we've been working we were always working from home but we've been wanting to move into an office for the longest time but the pandemic just hasn't allowed for that and we've just been working from home and we figured out that maybe this could be the way so i guess in terms of business and where i work that's been a positive in terms of realizing that maybe the office route is not the only route in terms of finding work. But yeah. Oh, and also I'm a mother. So I also became a teacher during the pandemic. <laughs> Online learning. So that was very, very difficult for me because I was doing my own work and I was being a teacher and I was, it was a lot, but yeah, it got better with time. And with this third wave, when they, they said, online learning again i was way better than i was the first time around so yeah at least you've learned a new skill and hopefully you know your son is benefiting from that uh but thanks for that uh timothy uh on your side and i think we can just progress the conversation from here uh especially would like to understand um, exactly on a way forward uh but timothy what's your view on COVID so far for you uh, so on my side in relation to uh COVID, so initially, um, I initially, when we first hit level five, I had, was working initially for an investment holding company, uh, and then we got retrenched by December. So from January to December, uh, I was a bit negative because I wasn't working, and the whole struggle of looking for jobs in a situation where in the pandemic was a bit of a depressing time for me. Um, but by the grace of God, I was able to get a job in, uh, in March, but it, it, the one thing I see about COVID, yes, there's a negative aspect to it, but I look at it as more positive because it just gave me the realization of that a salary is not the only source of income you need to look at. And just a, a view on just understanding passive income for the future because you never know when another pandemic may happen. You never know what will happen in life and just be able to know that sometimes you think you're, st you're stable and become complacent at times and just gave me that view on that. Um, in terms of, so that's just, just nine to five, in terms of uh, side hustle or passion, as Olali spoke about, our mind is mainly in whole entertainment of stand-up comedy and also markets and stuff. And that was a bit of a standstill when we entered level five, um, especially if you're an up and coming comedian, you know, not, not going to, when the gigs were open, it was mainly for those who were, familiar you know you want to bring someone who might have a good night might not have so that was also just trying to look at a different way to approach uh but there's certain things that i'm thinking of having in line and hopefully i can implement them this year 
Oh, appreciate that. Um, hopefully we hear more about your your passion. And I never saw you as a stand-up comedian, but at least I appreciate that you're starting to see something, a talent in yourself. So I appreciate that, man. Um, now, Neo, I'll probably go to you, but um, I'm not sure if you've arrived at home yet. Uh, but I think where I can progress the conversation as well, um, and maybe you can start with the part of this next question. Now, we've obviously seen how each person has experienced COVID-19 and the pandemic itself. And now we're in level four. And level four obviously is quite a, a rehash of what happened last year, but probably not on the same level. But I think going forward and seeing the effect that the pandemic is having on us individually and as a country as a whole, there's the question about the balance between lockdown and opening up the economy. And I don't know from your side particularly, what is your view on the way forward as a country considering the challenges that each of us individually experience? You've heard everyone's views, but I'd like to understand your view on terms of how the pandemic has affected you individually. But furthermore, as to exactly as a country, what is the way forward in terms of the pandemic itself? Neil? Uh, thanks, Peter. And just sorry again that my camera is off. I'm almost home. Um, so, for me, I think the, the, the pandemic uh, really had a, a negative impact on, on me as well, personally, health-wise, uh, because I also contracted the virus uh, in uh, December. Um, then, um, from a work point of view, um, I do work in community services, so from a health point of view as well, uh, we've had to go into quite a lot of um, clinics to assess uh, whether they're prepared to handle uh, an intake of patients and, and all of that. So I've been exposed to the virus from day one. And and that also has taken a toll on my mental health uh, at the time. So because you're stressing, you don't quite know what the virus is about and uh, how deadly it is. Uh, but as time went on and we get to, got to learn about the virus and everything, so uh, things became a bit better. Um, I think... When you speak of a way forward, for me, and I like what you what you what you said, because you said we need to find a balance or along uh, find a balance along uh, a lock to having lockdown and saving lives. So, uh, what captures that is that we need to save lives and livelihoods. And for me, I think uh, the way forward for our country is that we need to ensure that we get as many vaccines as possible and that we vaccinate as much people as possible because what, what's happening now and the scenes that we're seeing right now in the country are directly linked with the fact that a lot of people have lost their jobs, a lot of people have been poor in this country and living under the poverty line. So if we do not like work hard to save uh, the economy, save jobs, and also save lives through vaccinating as many people as possible. We're going to find ourselves in a very sticky situation as a country. And currently what's happening is that we're not vaccinating near as much as many people as we should be. And that's having a, a big, big impact on, um, on our, our ability to grow the economy and create jobs. Uh, so for me, a way forward would be to ease lockdown restrictions because um, I know this is a bit controversial, but uh, some people won't agree. But for me, there is no scientific evidence that proves that uh, 
if restaurants are closed, then the virus will spread far less. There is no evidence backing that up. There is no evidence backing up that, uh, uh, like, places like uh, uh, malls can be open, but schools should be closed, you know. Just the other week, I was at the mall when level, level four started and was packed. And but places like schools can't be open, and there's just there's just so many things that don't make sense about these restrictions. On the one hand, you open something, and then on the other hand, you close something. But then, how? Where's the evidence backing that up? So for me, lockdowns really don't serve much of a purpose, and what they only do is that they they put people's livelihoods in a very sticky situation and then we've seen this by the amount of people that have lost jobs so ease restrictions vaccinate people and uh prioritize people's livelihoods uh that's that's the way forward for me thanks peter thanks thanks neil um so at least hopefully you get home safely and you can just continue participating um let's see Bessel, on your side, what is your view on terms of the the lockdown and the actual aspect of balancing the also the economy? Because I think considering what has happened the past few weeks or the past week in particular, um, unemployment and the issue around um, getting jobs and people working, businesses suffering, what is your take in terms of the way forward, particularly with the lockdown. And obviously vaccinations are obviously a thing that was raised, which is important. But what, in your view, what as a country should we be prioritizing right now, if at all prioritizing anything? Bezo? Thanks, Peter. Uh, the sad reality is that COVID-19 is not only the pandemic that we are confronted with as the country. Uh, we're talking about femicide and abuse of women and children. Uh, now there's looting, there's lockdowns and everything. So as a country, we are confronted with many pandemics. And these social issues that we are confronted with, they exposes the inability of the state especially those who have been entrusted with authority to be proactive and work diligently for the citizens of this country. Yes, the pandemic, we may say it came off guard. For instance, last year, it's something that we were not, it's a new thing, what I'm trying to say, uh, but the speed and strategies that have been in place by those who are in authority of uh, in authority of uh, or, or of power, it's really questionable, Peter. Our resources, we have limited resources. If you enforce lockdown, there has to be a strategy to say you enforce lockdown for this period of time, because we don't know the behavior of this virus. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. I'm <laughs> uh, 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 We don't know the behavior of, 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 of this virus. But you lock people down, down in their houses. You, 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 you don't put more resources or, for instance, try to expand, for instance, our health system. 
we don't have enough hospitals and so forth just to build one hospital for for that period of time you understand that shows being proactive but on our side i think our government has been failing uh, in that regard many people have been making a lot of noise about 500 billion even today you you understand there is no accountability without being political or whatsoever accountability is not there you understand with 500 billion you can build a a a huge hospital that specializes with this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but it's not the case. Lastly, Peter, what I can say is that there is a lot of issues in our country and this pandemic, even in terms of uh, the economical spectrum, there is inequality. We cannot shy away from that. And also it exposes that our people as citizens, we are not well familiar or acquainted with our constitution. For me, on my personal point of view, because of the economy and looting to say people are hungry people, they don't have jobs. It shows that we are not, we don't understand our constitution and the power that we have as the citizens, because if we are not happy with this administration that we have put for approximately 25 years in power, we have power to vote them out instead of looting and burning a, 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 a economical a sector strategies, economical strategy. This girl, she is disturbing me, but uh, that is my point, Peter, to say if we are not happy with this administration, we mm. have power. It's not like during apartheid, whereby others, they don't have a right to vote. We have a right to vote. And when you listen to all these political parties, their view and their take to what is happening in the country, it shows that they are doing very well as oppositions. We really don't have an alternative party to the current one. That is my view. I'm sorry for that, Ash, this little girl. I'm babysitting here, Peter. Uh, I thought it's your own child, but it's okay, Peso. Uh, um, we'll come back to those, those points that you raised that I think we can come back to, especially the whole lock, the whole looting stuff, uh, which we'll get into. Uh, but I don't want to spend too much time on, too, on the broader issues and try to break down the common questions to certain things. So at least let's try uh, not to dwell too much on different topics as well. Um, now, just to also allow other people to chip in, um, Mbali, um, on your side, obviously now we've spoken about the balance between the economy and the, the whole lockdown aspect of it. But in terms of your view, and this is something that Bethel raised and Neo also raised about corruption and things like that. And there was a question that is corruption innate in us? Because, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend. It's like, is corruption innate with poverty or is just, are people just trying to do as much as they can and it's every man for himself in this kind of situation where people are poor, we have a government that's in power. Is corruption innate in people or is it just a case of when you have power, it's by virtue? Because it seems like no matter who's, in, who's the president, no matter who's the who's the minister, there seems to be always a case of corruption in this country, and even boils down to the individual way. You get stopped by a police officer, and you have to kind of offer some money. What is your view on that? 
Um, yeah, hey, uh, I have to say, I think, I think a lot, like you can have as much integrity as you can as a human being and like do the right thing at all times. But I guess the true test of integrity is you doing the right thing when nobody's watching. So I think that a lot of people just don't have integrity. I think that's just where it, it go, it, what it boils down to is that even when like a person is sworn into office or they are given a position, you find that maybe they were doing the right thing. But now that they are in that position and they are surrounded by other people who don't have integrity and who are doing the wrong thing, then they also just become part of the rotten potatoes or they just join in and just go with it. And then before you know it, it becomes a culture. It's like in corporate, if you work for an organization where everybody just like is positive, arrives on time, is eager to work, does their tasks and whatever, that's it's like a contagious energy. Even if you're the laziest person, but because you're around that kind of energy, that's what you'll do. But if you get to a place and you are like that positive person, hardworking, dedicated, but you get to a place where the culture is just bad, people aren't work hardworking, everyone knocks off early without finishing their tasks. In a way, after some time, that's also going to rub off on you. So I think that that's just how it also is with corruption, that like you're not born a person who's corrupt or you, but after some time, and also with desperation, because you find that there's corruption right at the top with our politicians and who and those who are handling big amounts and who are handling billions. And then there's also corruption with traffic cops. And then there's also corruptions, corruption at getting a job at government departments, just at all levels. So I would just say that, yeah, I kind of agree with you that it's almost unavoidable, no matter how much integrity you have. Um, but yeah, I suppose your conscience will lead you and your integrity and your, your moral compass. But I would say that nobody is above it. And that's why we find where our country is right now. No, thanks for that, Mbali. Uh, you think you raised a very good point about the fact that uh, an environment plays a significant role in terms of how people behave. And I think even looking at what happened this week, um, I think a lot of us operate in a sense of community that you know you're influenced by your environment, and maybe that influences your behavior. But I stand to be corrected on that as well. But I appreciate your take, Kalani. Uh, uh, what's your take on the aspect of corruption in this country and more so to Africa as a whole? Uh, it's, it seems not to be unique to particularly just Africa. And maybe there is corruption overseas, I don't know, but I, I can't speak to that. But what, what is your <laughs> yeah. take on that? Yeah, yeah, man. Um, I fully concur with Umbali. Like, Umbali really, like, she was on point, like, with everything she said. It's a cultural thing, you know. Me, I grew up Ezola, you know, that's where home is originally, you know, and I now live in the burbs. The cultures between the two areas are totally different, you know. Um, in the burbs, there's a lot of unity, you know, amongst us as a community, you know, we look after one another, you know, it's, 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 the energy here is more positive. The, the, the conversations that people have, you know, um, are more forward. You know, we, we talk about things that like empower us. We have conversations like this that we currently have, you know, 
Whereas when you go to the hood, it's, it's, it's totally different, you know. It's, there's a lot of pessimist, pessimistic views on everything, you know. Like, for instance, if I say I'm going to start something, it's like, how? what are you going to start it with, dog? Like, you know, um, it's, 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 it's a cultural thing, man. And, um, uh, and I feel as if that um, as, uh, as us African people, we need to start developing a culture and influencing um, our, our youth. And it also starts at home, you know, like I've got younger siblings. I do my utmost best to, 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 to be an example for them, a positive light for them, you know. And I also tell them that it's important that whenever you you figure out the the cultural aspects of things to also share with your friends, you know, so that we can start working together instead of working against one another. Um, you know, like for instance, in Ekasi, people are, uh, burning the infrastructure. For me, it doesn't make sense if you're gonna burn something that you're gonna need in the future. You know, you're being myopic, you're not being uh, hyperopic rather. Um, so it's it's a cultural thing more, 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 more than anything, you know. It's, it's like a child, for instance, um, a child who is maybe two or three years old who plays with their toys. You as a parent instill the thing of you know what, if you're done playing with your toys, please ensure that you clean up after your environment. Things like even littering, basic things like littering, you know, you find people who are just throwing a bottle on the floor, you know, even though there's a lot of dustbins around, you know, we, for, 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 our, for our communities to, 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 to grow and, and, and to be uh, clean, um, we, we as, as the people of the community, we need to ensure that we protect our communities, you know, and that's also what's currently happening. I know it's not right, but I'm not sure if you saw in the news, but in Durban, people are getting stopped and asked for their address, proof of address. That's messed up, you know, it's pretty much uh, apartheid again, you know, with the Dompas uh, system that they used on us. But um, essentially, like an area like Phoenix that is predominantly in, in filled with Indians, um, you don't find Indian people burning down the infrastructures. You don't find them looting their own institutions. You know, I feel as if us as as as, as Africans, we also need to start doing that, protecting our institutions, and um, and also try make a difference in our communities you know i've started doing that in my in my area as well i've you know partnered up with the various leaders within my community just to ensure that i can help where i can you know um you know and i feel like if each and every person could do that you know um just try and help out where they can our communities would grow you know but of course, there are also other barriers that you are very much aware of, you know, that, you know, um, uh, that, that, that are there, you know, especially for us African people, you know, yeah. for, the, for instance, the company where I work for, for you to even work in that company, you need to be, you need to have a qualification, a degree, you know, but other people who don't look like us don't necessarily have to have that. You know what I mean? To work yeah. there, you know. So those are the various barriers. But yeah, Peter, let me not um no. too much. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, man. 
Yeah, it's a very complicated com- conversation. And, you know, I was thinking to myself some of the questions I was going to ask, you know, am I asking these questions from a point of privilege or not? But I, I, it's, it's part of the reason why you try to have different thoughts and people from different backgrounds, people with different views. Um, let's start with Tabang as well. Uh, I, I don't know if you have, your network is fine now, but um, you heard Kalani speak about, obviously, and Badi also speak about the cultural aspect, but also just on an individual level. The question is, therefore, leadership is itself in this in this context of Africa and South Africa in particular. Is there a leadership crisis? And you heard what's going on in Phoenix and certain Soweto people are trying to do things on their own. So it seems like the le- there's less dependence on government, like people are taking things into their own hands. So you think even on an economic level, it's every man for himself as an approach to going forward as a country, if your government is not going to be serving your interests? Or is it a case of, you know, government must fully take the weight because of the fact that they are the ones we've elected, or assumably if you voted for them, a case. But is there a leadership crisis? And does that mean we have to take things into our own hands in whatever capacity? Uh, thanks, Peter. Uh, can you hear me, man? I don't know. Like, I'm trying to use my phone because my laptop is just giving me an issue. Yeah, we can hear you. We can hear you. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, so, man, I think a lot of you guys have touched on uh, good points, uh, what I've had so far. So I think, you know, like, to be able to assess where the corruption comes from first, we just need to understand where it comes from, you know, because there is a past that we cannot ignore. So people are trying to... I don't know, I'm saying maybe upskill themselves to get to a point where they are financially free and all their families taken uh, is well taken care of. I think all of us here, we do desire to get to a point where our family, they can do whatever they want, go to schools that they want. But then it becomes a problem when I take from my fellow brothers, you know, I take the basic needs in order to fulfill my family dreams and my own visions. So that's uh, the main thing. And there's also this theory that if you want to control people, you must first learn what they lack. And if you can provide for that, then you can easily control them. So we often talk about corruption and all the bad apples in the government. However, if there are bad apples, what about those good uh, good apples? If they are keeping quiet, are we going to say everyone is corrupt or those who like who kept quiet then? Like it becomes an issue. Like you can't be the only good person surrounded by bad people and then you expect that you will continue being good because over time they will control you as well. They will capture you. So like it becomes a, like a structural issue that needs to be solved on its, like on its route. And if, if we, if we're going to move forward and I don't know, man, it, like it becomes a, a problem. So yeah. as far as leadership goes, there is an issue as well because you cannot control everyone. So I think there is also lack of accountability. Uh, from what I've, the, the news that I've been watching, I, I've been getting a sense that our president has also been like discussing with a lot of commu- uh, committees and stuff. So I think there is no independent minded, independent mindedness, if that's a word. So we just need to ensure that we get to a point where you have a leader who is not afraid to do the good thing, even if everyone around them doesn't agree with them uh, or they think they are going the other way. I think that was the issue that Tawambeki had at some point because no one understood him. He just had this, his own vision. <laughs> like, I think he was a, too much of a visionary to be in that place where people never understood him. And if people don't understand you, they can't follow you because, hey, what are we following, you know, man? So yeah, I think we do need uh, strong leaders in that regard. 
but you must understand that it is a powerful job to do because people will hate you, man. So you just have to be willing to take that hate and do what's right, even if no one else follows you. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Um, Timothy, um, you've heard, obviously, the question about leadership. Now, in terms of what's going on in this country, and this is something that I was also reflecting on from Monday about violence. Mm -hmm. And there's a question about whether violence and poverty are synonymous. And I don't know if maybe it's a case of us being our history as Africa, um, fighting colonization and so forth. But now when it comes to issues where we have concerns, whether it's the government, whether it's issues of racism, violence seems to be an act in which the question was, if anyone is to ever achieve social change, is there any need for violence even at any degree? I mean, this, the, the cases where we spoke about how certain countries achieve independence through a social uprise, uh, whether it's from, from uh, coup or whatever cases, but what is your view on this violence, uh, especially as, a, as, a, as an African and us being African? Is there, is there a synonymous case of that or what is your view? I just want to touch on what um, Bali and Olani said in relation to corruption. Yeah. I understand where they spoke about the whole thing of culture and environments with different cultures. Uh, so it's not a culture, but like the environment associates a certain behavior that you, you believe in. Uh, but I feel like it comes down purely to greed on my side. Um, I feel like the whole thing of corruption is a matter of the fact of we tend to be greedy because of what we do not have. So for instance, like in Africa, I'll talk about two countries that I know of, like for Zimbabwe, when the pre pre previous president was gone by, they took him down by the army, um, that same person was the vice president and then they put him in charge. And then he stood the same, he was still a partner of that president, he stood did the same things that that pre previous president did because it gets to the point where you view as, why must I now come and change when I viewed someone as having this money and, and Dealing and that must be the change and sacrifice myself for these people. And I just like that's the mentality that kind of needs to change. I was literally having a conversation with one of my friends yesterday in relation to who is going to be the person to say, I've seen what people have done in terms of corruption. I've seen how they were able to steal money. Am I willing to come step up and say, let me sacrifice for the better of other people? Um, in relation to what you spoke about in terms of uprising and fighting i think when it comes to a point of where when you've been something has been repetitive so much sometimes violence becomes the only mean that people have because they've spoken they've voted they've heard all the stories i'm not saying it's right i'm just saying at times we, it feels like talking tends to not work out for them whereas violence tends to catch the attention of some sort which I'm not saying benefits anything because the violence that you're benefiting of stealing and looting, which cause of poverty is still going to lead to still poverty because price will increase because now a lack of food in terms of jobs be lost because they don't have money to pay people. So it's just a, a point of where it's this conversation that needs to be had, but at the same time, just understanding who as individuals is going to be willing to say, I am willing to say, let me sacrifice myself for the better of my people. It's difficult. No one's going to stand it due to the fact of maybe because we're colonized, we're so we still have that in our mind that when we get money or whatever it is, it, it won't, it doesn't just come to us. And the answer is just that's just my my view on that. No, thanks, Timothy. Yeah, it's, it's a very calm, and I was trying to play almost a level of devil devil's advocate because you know the, the point is typically raised that 
because I can't, uh, people don't listen when I speak. Uh, people make the argument that I have to destroy or at least call, create some attention to, to my needs. And that's typically some of the arguments that are raised on, on, on the opposite end. And I think that's something maybe we can just maybe see if that's actually, and I wanted to see what's your take on that. But now, obviously you've heard the question on your view, on your part, what is your view on terms of this whole aspect of violence, but more so to the, how do people get their voices heard, especially in a sense whereby if you have a government or leadership, even if it's not in the context of political aspects, but even on, an, on a local level, if you have a mayor, even in your household, if let's say your father or your mother is not listening to you, what ways of, as society, do we get people to hear our voices when people have concerns? If it's not violence, no. Yeah, so that's quite a broad one. Uh, but um, for me, um, in general, I think we do have a leadership problem in our country, and I think it stems from the fact that um, leadership in in South Africa has been defined by by interests, uh, people our leaders tend to take decisions and do things that uh, fulfill their interests and not necessarily fulfill the interests of the people or what is morally or ethically legally right. So that then becomes a problem because then it means that we often uh, get into situations such as that we've seen um, or that we are seeing uh, over the course of this week. We've had instances like Maridana, we've had instances of looting and of, um, uh, you know, social unrest on a number of occasions. And perhaps this is just like, um, is the boiling point because we've never seen uh, social unrest that has led to the, the, the death of so many people. But yes, uh, surely it is a leadership problem. And you're quite right as well by saying that it has to do with quite a bit of our history as well. I mean, South Africa has a very violent past and um, violence that has spilled over generations from the colonial era, the apartheid era, and now we're seeing it uh, unfold in the democratic era. So it's not something that you can just put a plaster on and just say, okay, um, we're going to solve um, our current um, social unrest in, in the country. And I said in the beginning when I spoke that this is so this is closely tied in, closely linked with the fact that our country is so unequal, that we have high levels of poverty. We have um, about 30 million people living uh, on the internationally recognized, know the internationally recognized uh, poverty line. So that's almost half of our country, just over half of our country that's living in this situation. So that's a recipe that for violence in any given society. So for me, leadership has been uh, quite a big uh, problem. There has been a leadership vacuum, and not only from the political sector in terms of our political parties, government, and all of that, but also in the communities. I mean, there's a genuine lack of, of moral leadership that dictates that, guys, we need to differentiate from right and wrong, and we need to do things accordingly. And I don't think it's a cultural thing because I think that that would be a manipulation, like manipulating the, the current situation. A lot of people have said perhaps that it's something that has to do with our culture. I don't think our culture does advocate for violence uh, in that sense. But I think it's something that has to do with the fact that we live in an unequal society. 
and there's been little that has been done over the last three decades uh, since we've been in democracy to sort of undo uh, what has been done over the 350 years before that. So for me, uh, we need serious leadership in this country, bold, decisive, uh, to transform and overhaul our economy, and but also uh, uh, a government that is in tune and that, that, that reads the room, uh, the temperature of the room. Because currently what's happening is that we, we have that absence of, of, of leadership across various sectors of society, not only in government, in our communities as well. We need to look at, into that and how we correct that. So for me, the, the, the situation can, be, can only be remedied if we confront uh, the biggest challenges that are facing South Africa. Poverty, inequality, a lack of uh, a government uh, leadership that, that, that implements policies that speak towards deliberately undermining inequality and poverty. Um, uh, we need uh, community leaders, we need civil society that engages robustly with government, with the private sector, and also dealing with issues of corruption, not only just providing lip service to that, but confronting it with real action, with real institutional action. And our institutions have been undermined, uh, they've been um, looked down at, undermined for, for the last couple of years. Yeah. So we need to look at it as a whole society approach and not just government, in my opinion. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. I uh, appreciate that. You know, it, I guess violence is not necessarily a cultural aspect. Maybe it really relates to our history as a country, like you said. Uh, but I'm trying to get at least as much views on this particular issue. Now, I mentioned the aspect of violence in this country and Africa as a whole. And, you know, how do we get attention of the government and so forth? And you, you now raised the point about on a community level that you even see these things of issues of leadership. And there's always the question about young people getting involved in leadership and all that other aspect. But there's also a question about, as a country, there's the whole Rainbow Nation thing that we initially, on the foundation of the country, was post-apartheid, you know, we're a Rainbow Nation. We have so many different tribes, cultures, races, and classes of people. Now, I don't know, is, is it a fair enough question to ask whether it's a failed project and if it's something that we should still aspire as a society to achieve? Uh, maybe let me start in Bali, because uh, obviously I, I am unproportionately disadvantaged there with having a lot of men here. But um, Bali, what is your take on the aspect of uh, of the aspect of rainbow nation, and if it's a failed project, and going forward, what is exactly the goal of South Africa on your on your part? No, so I don't think it's a failed concept at all. I, I really don't. Um, I just feel like it's just taken too long. I mean, it's nearly 30 years into democracy. Um, and I don't think that enough has been done in the time to make sure that the people who were previously disadvantaged are in a way better off position right now than they were before. So that in an effort to try and make sure that we are ensuring that we are a rainbow nation and um, all the races and all the cultures um, are represented and living and coexisting well in society and in our country, 
it would be very hard to try and achieve that if the previously disadvantaged, including in terms of race, in terms of gender, um, are still not as advantaged as they should be by now. So that's just my whole thing is that I don't think it's a failed concept. I just think that it's taking unnecessarily long. And there are policies in place and there are things like affirmative action, triple B, double E, and all of that. But I feel like there could be more and they could be fast tracking it a whole lot more to make sure that when we say we are a rainbow nation and then when we celebrate on these special days and holidays and occasions, that really we can say it with our chest and we can mean it because it is what is happening. But I wouldn't go as far as to saying it's failed. I'm just saying yeah. they could put pedal to the metal. No, thank you for that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's, it's, it's a case of whereby maybe to some degree, because we are such a diverse society, there has to be an idea of making everyone participate in society. I think maybe there's a failed aspect of making sure that achieves or is achieved uh, within the past thirty years. Polani, I see you raised your hand, so I think you wanna gonna chip in on that. The floor is yours. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to add on to uh, the Rainbow Nation. You know, for me, um, Rainbow Nation, the rainbow is made up of different colors. And I feel that um, for us African people, we don't own any institutions, right? That's my, my main issue with everything, that there's so many barriers you know, I did mention that, you know, to work where I work, you have to have an undergrad, you know, whereas other races don't have to have that, you see. Um, when it comes to loans, Indians have their own banks to loan to their own communities. As Black folks, we don't have that, you know. Um, when it comes to, even when it comes to our schools, bruh, you know, when you go to the townships, our schools are still the same schools. They, as, as far as infrastructure development is concerned, they're still the same as when our parents used to attend them, you know. Whereas when you go to uh, schools in the community I live in currently, they are progressing. They have hockey fields that cost five million rand. You know what I mean? You know, so for me, I feel as if uh, they, they to, these barriers need to end, first things first. And we as African people, we need to have our own institutions you know, and be self-sufficient. We can't be relying on the government all the time for everything, you know. Like, if, 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 our, if, if for instance, um, when, when it comes to uh, funding, you know, we shouldn't be going to other banks, you know, for funding. We should be having our own banks and fund our own businesses, you know. Pretty much Black Wall Street in America, you know. In the 70s, there was Black Wall Street, that was torn down by the KKK because they were afraid that black people are not sufficient. They can do things on their own without having to leave their own communities. Because when I look at areas like Lanesia, I'm not sure if you know Lanesia South in, in Joburg. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's on your way to the bar pretty much. Like Lanesia South, the people, they don't need to leave their communities, you know, for, for, for them, for them to, 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 to prosper, you know, from an education standpoint, they've got their own schools, they've got their own malls, um, they've got their own hospitals, 
you know, own car dealerships. They've got everything within their community. They only leave their community for entertainment. Like, for instance, if at the Dome there's a concert, Travis Scott, who's one of my favorite artists, pulls through and hits a concert, that's the only time they leave, but they end up going back to their own communities. Whereas us Africans, a lot of us travel long distances. Like, Utolumutu lives in Frenachim, traveling to Santon on a daily basis just for them to make bread. For me, I really don't understand that concept. Other races don't do that, but we do that. And so for me, for the Rainbow, the, the Rainbow Nation concept is we as Black people, these barriers need to end. We need to have our own institutions and be able to sustain ourselves without having to rely on anyone. That's just pretty much my take. Thanks for learning on that. Uh, let me add Sydney to this conversation. He just joined us now. Just switch on your mic. Um, I don't know if you've caught the flow of the conversation, but I, I want your take on this aspect of the Rainbow Nation. But I think more so to the aspect of Olani raised the point about institutions. And, you know, there was the whole thing I, I was reading about African banks history. And there was Dr. Sam Mutsunyane and how he started it. And, you know, the whole issue around institutionalization and, you know, this, the lack of support that as black people we have, but the, the question in particular is the whole institutional aspect, is that feasible and in the short term and what, what exactly is our aspirations to find footing and, but mostly let's start with the conversation of Rainbow Nation before I go too deep with the question and confuse you. Uh, what is your view on that? Is, is that something that's still tangible and is it a failed project and should we still aspire to something like that as a country? All right, no, thanks, Peter. Uh, and hi to everyone. I see a lot of faces I haven't seen in a very long time. Um, in terms of the Rainbow Nation project, I agree with Mbali. I wouldn't say that it is a, it is a failed project um, because I think one of the founding principles of this democratic South Africa was to try and have all these different races, different cultures, different ethnicities, different tribes, you know, have a system in which they can live together. Um, and I think that is that is what sparked the entire idea of a, of a Rainbow Nation project. But you will understand it's going to be quite difficult for people to live in harmony when there's such when, when there's such huge inequality. I think that that has been sort of like the trending um, um, you know conversation all throughout all throughout um, the week, all throughout um, um, the, the the reports that we've been seeing and all um, because. Right. You want to have this fascinating concept of people living in harmony, having this Rainbow Nation project where Blacks and Whites and Indians and whatever, whatever live together. Uh, but you're not dealing with, you know, some of these structural challenges that apartheid and colonialism came with, um, which still perpetuate themselves even in this day and age. You understand what I mean? Um, you're asking poor, disadvantaged Black South Africans to form part of this project, but you're not dealing with, you know, the 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 very many challenges that apartheid as a system and the history of this country and the history of this continent um, um, bears, right? So um, you still have what more than thirty percent of South Africans who are unemployed and of that 30 percent about more than 60 percent of those are young people and the vast majority of those unemployment statistics are black people as well right um you you have um as Colin was mentioning schools in ex-model c areas you have 
schools that are so-called um, rural schools or farm schools or village schools. You have all these structural challenges that have been ongoing even before the dawn of democracy and they're still showing the ugly face even now. Um, and you want people's buy-in on, on the Rainbow Nation project. It's not a failed project, but I think, you know, before before we can have a conversation about whether or not it's working, we then have to answer the question around economic freedom. Has that been achieved, especially for the vast majority of South Africans, especially for for, for the vast majority of, of Africans in, in particular? I can't deny the fact that, yes, you do need to have people living in harmony, but you can't have someone living in harmony whereas they're going to bed on an empty stomach. And I think that is what, um, by and large, um, I don't know if, if that has been covered in the conversation, uh, because at the beginning, at the beginning of the week, uh, when all these riots sparked out, there was this whole question: Well, is this actually for Jacob Zuma? Um, and then all throughout the week, then we start answering the questions around structural inequality in South Africa. We start looking at suburbs versus townships. We start looking at black versus white. We start looking at racial tensions within South Africa. Things that have been swept under the carpet. I mean, you look at the Phoenix, uh, so-called Phoenix massacre, right? These are existing racial tensions that have been con that that have been existing in in KwaZulu Natal that have been existing all over the country, um, and they have never been resolved, right? Um, yeah, and also uh, Neil's point around us needing leadership. How is it in the world that the leadership in South Africa didn't have the foresight that this could actually happen? Um, I mean, are they that divorced from the reality that that there's such high amounts of poverty, high high amounts of 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 inequality? Are they that divorced from that reality that they thought that oh, cool, 1994 democracy, thumbs up, everyone is fine now, right? Um, how 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 is it that there was not that foresight to to even imagine that something like this could happen, um, and it could happen, especially at a time like this, right? Um, so we're talking about all all the people that are going to be losing their jobs because of the looting and the rioting and everything that's happened um, all throughout the past week. Um, but that is what we see, and that is what we know, right? Um, what about the millions and billions of rands? Um, that have been swindled through government agencies that have been spent by the government itself. Um, I think everything um, boils down to whether or not we do have leadership and whether or not our leadership does have foresight and whether our leadership truly does have the interest of South Africans at heart. Because I think if those three areas were satisfactorily covered um, and, you know, there was actual decisive leadership on that end, as, as Neil had mentioned, um, then, you know, we would still be facing these challenges in South Africa, understanding that we come from a three, four hundred year history of coloniality, but the direction that the leadership would have taken the country and I think would have averted some of the challenges that we're seeing today. So that's that's on the part of, 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 of the Rainbow Nation project. The Rainbow Nation project is an amazing idea, um, especially considering the fact that, you know, I believe that things could have been far worse than they actually are right now. That's if they're not going to get a, any worse in the future. Um, but before we can focus our attention on the Re Rainbow Nation project as sort of like a tool to heal and reconstruct South Africa, we honestly need to have a conversation about, about economic reform, uh, economic reform, structural reform. And that will inadvertently speak to the point that Kalani was making about us having institutions of, of our own. You know, the whole conversation around uh, folks in Indonesia, folks in Zakaria Park, in different parts of, of Johannesburg, which are Indian communities um, that have formulated a system of circulating money within their own communities. 
And that is something that is practiced in almost each and every Muslim community around the world, right? Um, and, you know, I beg to ask the question that why is it that we can't do it as a people? But then you will remember that one of the founding principles of the apartheid government was to, to have the black majority turn on themselves in terms of race, ethnicity, tribe, tribes, um, language, and, and all of that, right? So all of you are black, but um, you're not the same thing. Um, you are a black Zulu-speaking individual, therefore we have to take you to a different province. Whereas with Indians, with um, the Hindu community, with the Muslim community, you don't have those, those, those sort of challenges. Um, and in, in that respect, I, I, I stand to be corrected, right? So before the Rainbow Nation project can take full effect, you first, I believe, first have to deal, of course, with with the structural economic challenges that you have in the country, but you also have to answer the question around, all right, cool, you want to have this Rainbow Nation, how do you get all these different tribes, ethnicities coming together, right? The president yesterday was saying that um, his statement on ethnic mobilization wasn't um, particularly accurate and uh, it was wrong of him to say that and, you know, and, and that on Shilada. Um, but from where we're sitting and with the two provinces that have been actively engaged in the protests themselves, um, there are, you know, there are segments of ethnic mobilization within that. And if we can't answer that question, if we can't deal with that, then we won't be able to deal with the challenge around, you know, um, um, ridding tribalism and, and getting rid of ethnicity and, and all of that. So you have, you have a black majority that turns against one another. You have racial tensions existing within the country, even post um, 1994, and you still have the issue of, of um, the vast majority not having um, enough access to the economy, not having enough access to opportunities, all the bureaucracy that comes with, you know, trying to be at the bigger table where, where decisions are made and where decisions about the country are made. So, yeah, I don't know if that if that answers the question. I'm very sorry for joining the conversation late. And if there are points that I'm making that you guys have already made, you, you'll forgive me in that respect. But I really think that um, a lack of foresight and, and you know, not being able to, to see even in 1994 that there would be such a challenge in the near future. I think that is, that is the biggest blunder um, um, of, 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 of the government. And, you know, um, one then asks, well, then what, what needs to happen? And I think that is, that is what the conversation seeks to, seeks to address. Thanks, thanks, Sydney. On that, uh, you you mentioned uh, a, a very powerful point, and I think this comes to a, the next question. Best of all, maybe you can come in on this part, um, especially the context where I also wanted to ask about the institutionalization, where Polani was speaking about us having institutions of our own. There's always been a question about for us to have, we have to take, and that seems to be a narrative that seems to be pushed sometimes in political spaces as well. It's also socially. That even you know, I was having a conversation with a colleague at work, a white, a white colleague, and he was asking the question that for you to so this whole concept, let's say BE or inclusiveness and even like affirmative action, sometimes is almost perceived as if for me, for you to have, you have to take and remove space from that I've built up. So let's say I've started my own company, now I need to include you, but your inclusion also comes at the extraction of something. What is your take on that aspect of? inclusiveness, but also at the aspect as well of ensuring, or I don't even know if it's the right way to phrase it, but having a stability where people don't feel like you have to take to have. 
or is there a case where black people have to set up their own thing over there white people have their own thing there and there's no case where we have to kind of sacrifice one another in the context of that i know it's a complicated question but i don't know if that's all if you can answer it that's all so peter can you hear me yeah yes i can hear you i can hear you yeah i'm sorry for for being all over the place initially but uh what i tried to emphasize is that there is nothing unapolitical even when we talk about uh, economics or you talk about laws all these things they're informed by the politics you understand in often times we'll hear people that no i've got nothing to do with politics and everything but everything uh, the foundation of everything is politics. So I didn't make an input in terms of rainbow nation. I will couple it together with this question. For my side, rainbow nation, it is a failed project uh, because we cannot speak about inequality. We cannot speak about racial tensions that still exist. Then we say, this rainbow nation is not failed it has failed and by the fact that we when are we assessing this project when was the time we sit around the table and assess this project since 1994 is it working or is not working you you get what i'm saying for me from my side is a failed project because when you check also in the economical sectors Black people are not are, are excluded. We, we, the captains of the economy is white people, is a fact. You go to the schooling systems where uh, uh, black students or African students are complaining about racial incidences in the schools. We'll hear white people to say, go in your own society and build your own schools. Then how can we say this is a, it's not a failed project. It is a failed project. And one of the impediment is that as young people, we are not given an opportunity, black and white, to speak frankly about these issues. Always old people are the stumbling block of progress for young people, black and white. You, you get what I'm saying, white people, all the white people will have a problem with you, Peter, marrying a, a, a young white lady. So it's one of the impediments, according to me, uh, they're everywhere. It's evident that this rainbow nation has failed and we are on our own as, 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 as black people. One aspect I wanted to chip in, Peter, is that when we talk about, I have listened to my sister and brothers speaking about corruption, about leadership. They've made a lot of reference to the public sector, government. What about private sector? What about private sector? Because also they are involved in this corruption in this mess that we are in. They are not paying tax because they understand the systems of which there is also state, uh, the state capture. There was an issue of KPMG and Stanford. Why are they not 
testifying. Always when we, 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 we look into corruption, when we look into the failed leadership, it's only the public sector. Where is the private sector in all things that is happening? And when you check the private sector, is white people. My brother Kolani said in other sectors, it's not where he's working. White people, they don't have qualifications. Recently, we have seen they, 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 they have decreased of which they were never they were never went to universities. And no one is making a lot of noise about that. But if it's me, Betwell, you find out that I have faked a degree. It will be a topic for the whole year. And who are the people who are making a lot of noise? It's us black people, but white people, they protect one of their own. So the issue of Rainbow Nation has, has failed my brothers and my sister. And moving forward, we, we must not only complain, but we must take a stance as young people to come to the table and speak frankly about these issues, black and white. Because my view, even if we can check, uh, 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 history will teach you that old people have been a stumbling block for progress for young people. And lastly, I know I'm, I, I, I'm very short on this question of yours, uh, Peter, to say the situation that we are in, if I have and you don't, is a sad reality. It's a sad reality. You will take. If it's not given to you, because some of us, we are working very hard. You know, to be a young black person is very difficult in South Africa. Then we say, we, 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 we shy away that this project has failed. It's very hard. If you don't have a proximity to those who are in power, who are Africans, your own, you are sidelined. If you have a descending views, you are satellite, you will starve. Because of the color of your skin, you don't have a privilege to get some of these things. So my, 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 my intake on this, Peter, is that we need to sit down around the table and have a frank discussions, black and white, about these discussions. Coming from different backgrounds, I think moving forward to assess this situation, to assess this so-called rainbow nation. Yeah. yeah. I will pause there. Thanks, Petal. Um, <laughs> this conversation, I was hoping by now at least would have summarized, but I think for the sake of, because this conversation is very important and uh, I, I wouldn't want to take too much of your time. So in the case where you have to leave, uh, please, please feel free to excuse yourself in a sense, but hopefully you've at least given chance at least everyone can speak. So if you want to share your last views, please feel free to do so. I noted Neo and Sydney raised their hand. So let me let Neo go in, uh, but then Sydney, I'll come back to you once I've also allowed the other, other guests to also come in. Neo, uh, I don't know if you want to add on or if you want to extend to the question. Yeah, I just wanted to, to add on to something. Uh, uh, you know, uh, my brother there, Betuel, is saying that uh, the Rainbow Nation has, has, has failed. Um, my sentiments there are quite similar to Sydney's uh, uh, sentiment. I don't think that the Rainbow Nation has necessarily failed. What has happened, rather, is that when 
the black majority took control of the levers of government in 1994. There has not been a deliberate and a robust program, transformation, transformative program that has been put in place to undo what has been done in the last 300 years, 350 years odd. And secondly, to empower the majority of South Africans. What we have seen is the implementation of race-based policies such as PEE, where essentially what government has done was we're going to implement affirmative action, DEE, and all of these things, but they've only benefited a connected few. They only uh, benefited certain people, not a majority of, of people. So it's about filtering down the, the, the opportunities that come with these policies to the majority of, of people in the country. So that has not happened. And there was a conversation, a very good conversation uh, earlier on about how the Muslim community circulates um, uh, finances within or resources within their community and why are we failing to do so. We have a whole government, if you want to look at it th that way. Black people control are controlling the government of South Africa. Now, instead of us using the levers of state to push the agenda, the transformative agenda that will benefit the majority of South Africans, them being black, we have actually not done that. We've done the opposite. We've concentrated resources to a, to, to a minority, a small clique of connected people. That's what we've done. We've also been slow to, to do the necessary changes that we need to, need to do in terms of the, the democratic opportunity that we have, in terms of government. So if you're going to assess the performance of the ANC or the DA or whatever, you must say over the last five years, you've been given the opportunity to do ABC and you have not done that. And South Africans have been quite content with the situation because we have time and time again given the same people the levers of, of state to say, you're going to run uh, for another five years, you're going to do the same thing for another five years. So what I think is, is happening is that we, we, we lack a sense of accountability and our, our leaders lack a sense of accountability and we lack a sense of accounting, of seeking that accountability from them. And that, that is very, very difficult to achieve, especially when you see that people um, are, 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 quite, are quite sort of, I don't want to say are afraid of change, but uh, I, I don't want to recognize that when change is, is needed at a particular point. So for me, I don't think that the Rainbow Nation project has, has failed. I think it is struggling and it's being hampered by the socioeconomic issues that we are facing. Inequality, poverty, and, and it's a brilliant point that was made earlier that, uh, by, by Sydney, that you, 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 you cannot expect people to come together around a bonfire and sing Kumbaya together if one of if some are hungry and some have more than enough to, to, to eat, you understand? So it then translates into race because of our history. Resources and opportunities for the white, poverty and inequality for the for, for the blacks. So we 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 need not throw away this our our, our push, the agenda for Rainbow Nation, because 
ultimately we don't have a choice. The opposite of rainbow nation is division. It's 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 uh, further racial tensions, it's escalation, and potentially here in the Western Cape we have a crazy group of people called the Cape Party who believe that they are one day going to secede from South Africa, and they they want the Western Cape to be an independent state. I mean, these if you say the rainbow nation has failed, you actually emboldening those kind of people. The, the similar groups have been springing up in the KZN as well. We say they want an independent KZN. That kind of rhetoric for me, saying that the Rainbow Nation has failed, it fuels and, and, and just fans, uh, fans the flame of, of racial tensions and division in our country. I don't think we have much of a choice but to unite as South Africans. But in order to do so, us as, as, as black people, as majority of, of this country, as the people who are controlling the state, so to speak, if, if you want to uh, look at it that way, we need to be honest and we need to confront our leaders to say that what you've been doing has not been in line with what, what we want to achieve as, as young people, as black people in this country. And therefore, you're either going to course correct or we are going to, 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 to stand up and take control for ourselves. And, and, and I don't understand why we also want to be included. We keep on saying that we are excluded, we're not being included, we're being kept out. We have the power to also rise up. We, we also have the opportunity to go into these certain circles. And we see young ministers, young leaders. I mean, if you look at people like uh, Ronald Lamola, for example, you see young people entering these spaces. They must also, we must also um, encourage more young people and more people who are progressive-minded to enter these spaces and to take up leadership and to do what is right. And I agree with Betuel on the idea, on, on the point that he made, that old people are keeping us out and they're they, they actually um, um, hampering the progress of this country because they sit in their circles, they make decisions of which they won't be accountable for because they won't be there in the next few years. Thank you, I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Neo. I, I think for the sake of time, uh, let's maybe get me one last to two, the last second round, I guess, before everyone leaves, because I don't want to take you a whole day and probably people want to go do the errands. Um, Tawang, and then I'll come back to Sydney and Bali as well, and then Kalani as well. Then we can just at least try get our last points after that. Um, Tawang, you've obviously heard the question about um, one was the leadership aspect, the issue around rainbow nation, but I want to not dwell too much on that. Considering the current climate that South Africa is in right now with the looting, and I mentioned this question particularly intentionally, and I was hoping the other two female ladies were going to join the conversation, uh, because one of them is quite prominent about the issue around looting, uh, which is quite different from most of us what you've shared here. Um, but Tabang, what is your view in particular to the aspect where I raised the question about for you not to have in a society that is already unequal, and with the slow progress of government intervention, you have to take. And that was an argument one of the people who was going to join the, the, the discussion was making that, and I'll, I guess I'll speak on behalf, that was a question she put up, that in your absence of not having, if you're a poor person, you have to take something because you're sharing amongst the little that you have, and you see someone having something, there's an important aspect of one having to take. So I don't know if you want to add to that particular, or if you, what is your view on that particular aspect that, you know, society, even pol politically from a policy level, should there be an aspect of questioning that for one not to have, there's a part that has to come encompassing of taking as well. 
even if it's from a social moral level that you have to share as well. Like you have to give me something as well. Tabang, what is your take on that? It's a very complicated question, but I ask at least that you don't just bet dog too much on it. <laughs> I just had my name there. Uh, I was away for a bit. Uh, no, just a question around to to have to have something you also have to take in an equal society. And that was one of the questions. One of the other guests, a, a woman was going to ask, she asked me before I started the podcast today, is that if mm-hmm. someone doesn't have something, your neighbor doesn't have something, right? And you have something. Yeah. There's a question morally, are you expected to share with them that, or he has to take from you? What is your view on that? Sure, that's a tough one, man. Uh, that's a tough one. Uh, so I don't know, man. I feel like uh, as like a person of color, like you should understand the past and why the other person lacks. So that once you understand that we don't all have uh, like the same opportunities. If I have these opportunities and my brother on the side that he's still looking for a job, I should, you know, uh, look out for them just so I can just assist them to get to a place where they want to be. But I don't exactly expect them to take from me because they should understand that maybe I also, I come from the same place that they come from, you know, because now, now when you look at, when you watch the news and you look at the looting, uh, Imagine, man, you are in your area and then your fellow people come and trash the place where you work in, which will just result in the unemployment rates being shot up. So like now you also want to feel some type of way that, okay, guys, we all trying to get to a place where we are liberated, economical, free and all that so we can help one another. So now if you drag me to the position that you are in, uh, a predicament where we all trying to get away from, you're just making that situation worse you know so i think you must first also understand that we're all trying to help one another but you shouldn't take just try to come to me and ask for help if you need to uh if you need to get some bread and something like that but uh i wouldn't expect anyone to take but however i do understand where they come from because you know man sometimes it's all about survival but I don't know, like, I feel like lately there's also some criminality in it. It's not always survival. Some people just take for the sake of taking. Like, why would you take a plasma screen if you, <laughs> plasma TV, if all you need is food, you know? Or are you going to sell it later on? It becomes an issue now. But for other people, it's just a matter of surviving, just getting food to eat, where you feel like the government is not listening to you. They're extending the lockdown. And maybe you were still looking for a job then. So if they extend that, it means you're not going to have food to eat for the next two weeks. So we do understand where it comes from, but I wouldn't condone it. Like, hey, don't take, rather just talk to someone, ask for help. And surely people will understand that, hey, these are tough times. So we should, yeah. we should look out for one another. No, you, um, yeah. Sydney, before I go to you, because uh, I just want to include Bali again, uh, just by disadvantaging her by being the only woman here. Uh, as I said, the others were unfortunately able to join. Then I'll come back to you. Um, Bali, what is your take on this aspect? Because uh, Tabang raised the aspect. Now, and I put it in the question about, is there a moral expectation that if you if you have something, let's say, for example, in the context of South Africa, economically, it is believed that white people have the resources. So is there a moral, besides government intervention, is there also a moral importance to expect, even on a community level that your neighbor is a poor, you are rich or vice versa. There's also a moral expectation for you to give or sacrifice, if that's the other word you wanna use, to share beyond government intervention. Because this also speaks to, as a country, can we only make change 
by policy and not on a moral compass as well. That's more to the question. I don't know if it makes sense. And yeah, Bali, the floor is yours. Okay, um, I know I definitely agree with Tabang and such great points there, Tabang. Um, I, I think there, I think there is a moral obligation to share or to, you know, like I feel like where we grew up in the townships or like the rural areas, like there was a sense of community and people shared what they, what your neighbor did not have and you had, you shared with your neighbor. If your neighbor didn't have a TV and you had a TV your neighbor would come to your house and you guys would sit and all watch TV. That's how I grew up with my whole community and my parents. And there was just that sense of community of sharing. Obviously, um, whether there should be an expectation, not so much because at the end of the day, um, it's a, it's a choice. It's not, it's not mandatory. It's not an obligation. It's a choice whether you want to share, but the, the moral obligation lies with the person who has the most or has a lot and they cannot just sit or they should not sit and watch while their neighbor suffers or doesn't have while they have too much. But I don't think that there's um, a right to take if the person who has a lot is not sharing because that's not right. And that's what has created this situation that we're in at the moment where there are people who are generally desperate and didn't have anything in this time. And they use this opportunity to get food and to get what they need and what they don't have. And then you find people that have a lot, people that live in double stories, people that have cars and people who have businesses who are also part of the looting. They were also stealing. They've turned it into a business. They are selling bread for double the price and whatever. So that, that's when you see that element that Tabang was talking about of criminality and greed. And, you know, so at, at a time like this, there, there was really that differentiation of those people who were in desperate and dire need, who had no choice but to do what they did because of the failure on the part of government. And then there's those people who just were opportunists and took advantage of the situation that had been created. Um, so I don't think that we should always place reliance on the government to save us because we've seen that now nah, well, they are for themselves, just like the private sector is for themselves and the white people are for themselves. So Tina, as a community and as a people, sometimes I do feel that the obligation and the responsibility is on us. Uguti, while you rise or as you rise, to rise, to help rise the person next to you and to help the person who's next to you who does not have. Thanks for that, buddy. Uh, Sydney, I know you raised your hand a while back, so I don't know if you still have, remember your points, but I don't know if you want to add on to the conversation so far as it's progressed. Uh, then we can yeah. go back to everyone else. Yeah, no. Uh, my input was was on the question around taking. The taking and, you know, if you don't have, then what it is that you do. I, I think we need to remember part of what informs um, someone earlier on said that we shouldn't refer to it as a culture. Um, but part of what informs, if, if, if you've tracked protests in South Africa over the past few years, right, there's always been a trend of looting, right, be it looting shops of, of, of foreigners, be it, you know, um, taking from other people. Uh, um, we, can, we can refer to it as elements of criminality. We can, we can judge it in whichever way that we want. But 
1994, when people were introduced, in fact, not in 1994, because in 1994 they voted, but during the construction of this new South Africa, right? Um, what the ANC gave to the people was that the country that you are going to live in, the South Africa of the future, is going to be a socialist communist South Africa where everyone is going to share, everyone is going to have equal access to opportunity. Um, and, you know, so that, that, was, that, that was the one aspect. And I think it is it is in the Freedom Charter that says that um, um, oh, now 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 I'm, I'm I'm losing that that very specific line. But I think you guys know know uh, what what I'm referring to, right? Um, around sharing of resources, equal access to opportunity, everyone shall benefit from the land, right? So it's not. I think the challenge here, Peter, it's it's not the fact that people are taking. That is not my 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 challenge, right? Because if you go to a shop, right? If you go to a house and home or a fair price, and you take your you take a nice plasma TV for yourself, you take a nice set of couches that cost sixty five grand. Well, kudos to you, man. You've got that. You've got what what you want at that particular point in time. But then the question is, how long is what you've taken going to last you? And I think that is that that is the biggest challenge. Um, it is inevitable. I think one thing that we need to agree on is that in any society, a society that has gone through a history of racial um, brutality, a history of dispossession, a history of losing um, assets and resources, a history of losing livestock, a history of losing family members, right? The inevitable is that should there be a dispensation that is democratic such as ours, that obviously has to be taken. And a vast majority of South Africans have always been confused that, oh, but if we have the ANC in power, then why aren't they taking back the land? Why aren't they taking back the economy? Why aren't they taking this? Why aren't they taking that? Why aren't we seeing actual change in society? And I think the question would, you know, it would emanate from the point that it is expected that with a new leadership, with a new dispensation, um, that there has to be evident, obvious reform that people can see. So the question around taking, um, in, in, in my opinion, comes from the whole idea that the ANC gave to people, that once we get into power, rest assured, we take the Freedom Charter, we take socialism, we take communism, and we run with that, right? And whoever has taken more than what they need, we're going to take from them and then we're going to give to you. But what has happened is that the ANC has taken, but has it given to anyone? <laughs> that is a question that, that us millennials will have to answer, right? Um, so I, I just want to quickly, because uh, while, while everyone was giving their point, I just want to quickly touch on, I think, two, three points. So the inevitability is that when regimes change, there has to be taking because you're going to have a situation where one group has more than the other. And then you have to move from a conversation of equality to a conversation of equity, where you see to it that even though you don't have as much as the white folks in Santon, but we're going to empower you to a point whereby you know you are more or less on an equal footing, even if it's not going to happen in 30 years, but we're going to empower you so much that you're able to compete with that person, you're able to have equal access to opportunity. And that is definitely not something that that um, that we've seen. No one in any society, um, be it that you believe in the principles of Ubuntu, of Christianity, but in any society, no one should be allowed to have all the resources to themselves. And in this particular statement, I'm, I'm blatantly referring to 
to to white South Africans and 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 you know the vast majority of wealth that they enjoy, because when you have all the access to all the resources, literally 70, 80, 90 percent of the entire country's wealth belongs to you. That is obvious room for abuse, right? And what makes it worse in this entire scenario is that I know that the, the conversation around majority and minority is a very uncomfortable one, but you are a minority and you are suppressing the majority. What is it that you expect? The majority is just going to sit back and be like, hey, all right, uh, you've worked hard. Uh, your forefathers did all the work. You get all the stuff. That is definitely not how it's going to happen. I think the problem in South Africa, it boils down to, to how Black South Africans, especially Black South Africans who don't have access to a lot of education, who don't have the language to decode what the problems in South Africa are, but everyone can see that what is happening in South Africa is just wrong, right? Um, even if you are a 13-year-old boy and you're walking into a store and you're like, you know what, I'm going to take that bribe pack, I'm going to take those underwears, I'm going to take those shoes. It is wrong that I don't have these things. You don't have the language to sort of like decode the challenges in South Africa, but you do know that it is not fair for you to be in a school that doesn't have a uh, a hockey court that doesn't have swimming facilities, that doesn't have a playing field. And on top of that, you know, you are in an overcrowded class, but someone who's the same age as you, living in the same country as you, living within a five, 10 kilometer radius from you has access to everything and they're able to prosper, right? So whichever way you look at it, if you have too much access to opportunity, too much access to resources, and it is only you who has it, you're obviously opening up room for, for, for abuse. And I think it is on that premise that people take. So it's on the premise that, one group has it all, but also on the premise that South Africa, its found its foundation was giving people the impression that we're going to form a tripartite alliance, and in that tripartite alliance, we're going to bring in um, um, the South African Communist Party, and we're going to bring in uh, uh, the Congress of South African Trade Unions. So we already people have this perception of socialism and communism. Thirty years later, they find themselves living in a very capitalist society that is still unequal. So that is, that's one of the challenges. The other challenge um, is that, you know, honestly, we don't have decisive leadership. And it's so funny when I think back to the times, because um, you'll recall, Peter, when we were still um, in undergrad, when we were still studying at the Northridge University, some of us were, were active in, in the student wing of the ANC. We were like, South call the way, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, we're going to fight the system. We're going to fight white people. We're going to fight on this campus. We're going to mess all this up, right? Um, with the, you know, and I think what is, what is unfortunate, someone mentioned something about youth leadership. Um, and I think back at that time, there was, you know, you have this, this optimism that, you know, we are the change that the ANC needs, we are the change that the ANC is looking for. We are the young people that are going to take this mass democratic movement and we're going to turn it into something fresh, something new that gives access to young, uh, gives access to opportunities to young people, right? and try as much as possible to, to live that out. But honestly speaking, um, now, I mean, you obviously have to move from, from a student class and have to move into a working class. And once you are in the working class, you realize that, man, what you guys are trying to do, this is a structure that has been, so you're, you're fighting structural racism on one end, but on the other end, you're also fighting structural entitlement. How you know, the elderly feel so entitled to leading and feel so entitled to having um, all of these resources to themselves that because I'm over the age of 65 or 66, it is my time now to lead. That is entitlement. 
And that is why young people don't have access to opportunity because you have all these elderly people who went into exile for years on end, um, didn't live with their families and, you know, fought for this liberation who now feel entitled to lead the liberation. And I think that is also a, a very huge challenge, right? Um, and, you know, there has to be a role distinction that your role at that time was to liberate the country. Now that the country is liberated, the context has changed completely. The era has changed completely. The struggles might still be the same, but what we need now is innovative ideas. And innovative ideas, you can't expect innovative ideas to come from a 66, 67 years old, seven years old. Shout out to our parents. I know they are more or less within that age, right? And last but certainly not least, we don't have Chabo Pulusa. He's he's an author. Um, he's a Limpopo-born author, and he argues that. I mean, the spotlight will obviously be on the ANC because the ANC is the ruling party. So the ANC is not decisive, right? Um, when it when it comes up, for example, with a policy around land reform and taking back the land to redistribute it, it is not decisive in that action. We're taking back the land, but in taking back the land, we're still going to have secret conversations with the landowners and find out how many millions do you need so I can take this land from you, right? So it's not decisive. Um, and I think um, the question around what is it that people need to take, people are not supposed to be taking from malls, food and, and cultures and TVs because you can only use that up until a particular point. What was supposed to have been taken when, you know, this democratic dispensation was introduced to people, power was supposed to be taken unapologetically, the economy was supposed to be taken unapologetically. And the reason why you would see people taking material possessions is because of the conditioning that has been introduced to people, that what you have represents a sense of success to you. So if you have a plasma screen, if you have a nice washing machine, if you've got, you know, Adidas shoes or a Nike sweatshirt, then, hey, you've made it in life. But how long is that going to last you, right? And everything, Peter, will boil back to whether or not we do have decisive leadership, whether we do have leadership that is that is actually able to lead people forward. Don't introduce a policy to people that says to them, you are going to have equal access to all the resources of the land. And then when it's time to roll that out, then there are all these terms and conditions and bureaucracies and all these gatekeepers that, that are keeping that from happening. And I think it's even worse when it is you, the leader or the ruler, that is the gatekeeper. It is you who's keeping people from the opportunities that you promised that you would give to them. So. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on that, um, that honestly, the whole idea around socialism and, and, and communism, um, people still live with the expectation that whichever government is going to lead them is going to take them out from a system of oppression yeah. and introduce them to, a, to, 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 I don't think people just want to have things without working for them, right? But I think everyone wants to have an equal shot at being able to get those opportunities. And that's where we start having to introduce the conversation around equity versus equality. Thanks, Sydney. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you raised the point about the fact that, you know, taking and, you know, it's, it's, it, we also have to, and you, I think for part of what you've completely been saying is that we have to have a larger conversation about some of these issues. And unfortunately, because of time, we t- I had so many different areas. Um, one of the other ladies was supposed to join. She mentioned something about madalarism, which is a word she phrased that, you know, old people have a culture of, you know, Madala, you know, we are, we are, we are the ones who preserve certain things, and even in the corporate level where she works, is that even Polanyi spoke about it as well, and other people have spoken about it before in the context of that. 
as, as a young person, you try to make change and, you know, you're faced with so many barriers of the fact that Bethel mentioned this, particularly the fact that he works in government and you find that there's so many barriers you have to overcome just to make some level of change. But I think Nero raised the point that, you know, we have to participate in so many different areas of, of leaderships and change. And I think that's the start. But I think just to go to the last round, and this is where maybe everyone can just share the last points for the sake of time. I'll start with Polani. You've um, obviously heard the conversation. And I, I don't want to, because part of the idea was to maybe start asking the question, what is your solution? What do you think should change? But I, I think I'm putting too much expectation on each of you. And I think the better question is to ask on an individual level, You've lived in South Africa, you've grown up here, you know the society that we live in, and you are now a grown adult. You have your own desires, aspirations. On an individual level, what is what, what do you seek to do for your own future, for your own family, in the context of the fact that you want to prosper as a Black young person? And I think that's a better question to ask than to put the responsibility for you to come up with a solution for society as a whole. But on an individual level, what is it that you are doing or what is it that you want to do with that on the individual level, whether it's for yourself, your family, your kids, whoever, to ensure that you at least have a prospering life as a young Black person? Polani? Um, all right. Um, so, okay, Peter, on my end, um, I'm a person who likes preaching unity a lot. Um, and I feel like unity is something that first begins at home. You know, the concept of unity is something that begins at home and um, if at home we are united and next door they are also united, when our kids come together to play with one another, they understand that unity. So we've already passed down a positive trait to them. So for me, it's just um, it's, it's just the unity side of things. When I buy food, I don't buy food for myself. I buy for everyone in the household, you know, because I see, especially where I grew up, you know, there's this culture of people for instance, you know I'm a, you know I'm a queen here, right? You know, yeah. and it's normally it's it's a, it's a meal that's normally child mostly on Sundays. You find someone buying two for himself. Meanwhile, he's got a sibling, you know, at home who also would need that, you know. So for me, it's just instill unity amongst my family and my household, and of course integrity, you know. But like uh, Bali mentioned mentioned that you know um, when 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 you're alone and no one is seeing, that's where the true t- test lies. But for me, it's just to preach unity and respect. And also, you know, um, the fruits of the spirit. I'm not sure if you know the fruits of the spirit from the Bible. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, that's pretty much that. For me, it's just the intangible things. You know, I feel like once you grasp the intangibles, you will be able to now be able to uh, be able to acquire the tangible things, you know, in your life. So, yeah, that's pretty much what I have to say. Thanks. Um, yeah, I appreciate, you know, you spoke about unity and something that I think as a collective, you know, we have to unify the country and whichever capacity as individuals, you have a responsibility to ensure that, you know, there is a sense of community within your environment. Um, yeah. Neo? What is your what is your parting words, particularly on an individual level? What what is it that you seek to, to achieve and fulfill on your own level as a young black person? Maybe this may be inspiration for someone else, but what is your part on this? 
Um, for me, I'd say that um, I, I have quite a lot of hope that uh, things can can get uh, on track in, in, in this country. And like I said earlier, we just need to all participate and play our part as young uh, uh, black people in this country, uh, as a majority of this country. So for me, I, I guess what we what, what we can do in the main is to in in the areas of the various areas uh, or positions that we hold, uh, try and use that little bit of influence that we have to to uh, to, to push for for change. And uh, it might seem so little, it might seem so insignificant, but it really does make a change when you're sitting in whether it's a it's a meeting at work and you're ad advocating for an investment into a particular youth program, or you are uh, in your community leading a cleanup campaign, or whatever the case may be, it might seem insignificant, but it is something that 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 sparks something, potentially sparks something that can be sustainable. So for me personally, um, my my take, I, I took quite a lot out of this conversation. Very great, uh, brilliant inputs that have been made by everyone. Um, um, and I, I take quite a lot from that. And going forward, I guess, uh, like I said, it's try and play my part in the various uh, positions that, or, or areas that I I, I, I I am acquainted to. And yeah, that's all for me. Thank you. Thanks, Neil, for that. Um, let's, let's go to Peso. What is your... On an individual level, what is it that you foresee for yourself as a young black person to ensure at least there's some level of prosperity and progress? Because I try to avoid the aspect of you trying to find solutions for everyone, but on an individual level, whether it's community, your contribution, or on your own capacity as an individual, what do you seek to fulfill? That's all. Uh, thanks, Peter. Uh, my take is that things similar to, to Neo. In every small corner that I occupy, it's very important to make a positive contribution. That small corner that I occupy. Uh, and also, you know, we must not be afraid to fail. I'm not afraid of failure. You know, uh, when I fall, I stand up, I dust myself, and I continue the journey. Same with this project. I know many people have descending view about failed project of Rainbow Nation. Does not mean we must resort to divisions, hatred, and so forth. But it's very important to assess it, redefine it, and continue with the journey. So that will be my take, uh, even in a, a personal space. Uh, I'm not afraid to fail. Uh, I'm very resilient, I bounce back. And that's what also I instill to my children. Uh, my brothers is very, you know, when we talk about the subject of poverty, uh, some of us, we, we experienced it, even the thing of taking, you know, uh, but opportunities are there. Opportunities are there, you need to make an effort. Uh, there will be someone who's looking at you uh, and that person can extend a hand. And even with us, if we have opportunities or we are in positions of privilege, let's, let us extend our hands to help those who are unfortunate. 
Thanks a lot, Peter. I hope all of you will watch the game tonight. Uh, Kaiser Chiefs will restore peace and love in this country of ours. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I appreciate everything you said, Bethel, except for the last part. I think that's the only part where I am not patriotic in this particular conversation. But uh, all the best to Kosi fans. As a Bacchanea, I will be, yeah, never mind. Um, but thank you for that. Um, let's go to Mbali. Uh, what is your parting words in terms of, as an individual, what are you going to be, what do you seek to achieve and fulfill? And what responsibilities are you going to place on yourself? Mbali? Uh, I'm not sure if Bali is frozen. I'll come back to her. Uh, let's go to Tabang. Uh, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Yeah. I think I share the same sentiment with Bethwell, except the last point. That one I fully disagree with. That. <laughs> um, and yeah, from from my side, uh, like I think the more like you you get opportunities, I think you owe it to yourself to bring your fellow brothers up to you. I'm not saying this in a sense that you want to bring yourself down. No, like to get to a point where you are, you're also given opportunities. So I think when you see a fellow brother there just starting out in the field that you are in and you can see that they're clearly struggling, I think it's your moral obligation to just reach out and, you know, possibly mentor them so you, they can, you know, do well, prosper and, you know, do the things that you wished you could have done at that level. And the uh, reason I'm saying this, like in a corporate space, I don't know if you guys realize, the more you, I don't know, you climb up the ladder, you you see less people who look like you, you know? So like, I think you should get to a point where like we all have equal opportunities. So if someone new starts starting out at your firm or your own company or whatever, just just have that sense of community as Golani uh, mentioned, just reach out, uh, you be morally obligated to prosper, like do well, black excellence, because if they see you and they see this person, okay, this person came into this role and they killed it, maybe the whole race. Like, I know like it's, it can be a negative way of approaching it, but we also have to change that perception from them and also empower people who look like you so they can, you know, keep elevating and prospering so we can get to a point where we are all truly equal, you know? So, yeah. Thanks, Thanks, Tawa. Um, Bali, just not let me know that she has network issues, so she most likely won't be able to join back. But yeah, we appreciate her views. Um, let's go to Sydney, and I think then we can just wrap it up from there. Sydney, what is your parting words, particularly in the context of as an individual? All right. Um, my parting words, I really hope that, you know, conversations of this nature one of the challenges that we have, Peter, in all honesty, is consistency, right? Um, this past week, the reminder that South Africa is not equal, the reminder that Black people are still living in poverty, the reminder that Black people are still going hungry, it seems as if it only trends when there's something that happens, right? When when a couple of people loot a shop, when they loot a mall, that's when, oh, snap, South Africa is not equal, right? So um, I'm, I'm really hoping that... that you know, we can have ongoing conversations of this nature. And uh, not only amongst us, because um, uh, a whole lot of us come from, come from for as long as I've known um, most people in the room, we come from a history of, of advocacy and activism and leadership, right? Um, but I'm really hoping that more people can be influenced to carry on these conversations, even in their small 
even in the small circles. Um, and, you know, um, just continue conscientizing other people around challenges that we have uh, in the country and give people the confidence to be able to decode the problems that we have and be able to express them, right, um, in whichever form um, that they can. Um, but, yeah, so because I work on, an, on a number of, of campaigns and a number of programs, um, but at the same time, I'm also an educator full-time um, on a, from half past seven to half past two. I'm reporting to some principal that wants a thousand things from me. And then after that, I'm doing a whole lot of other stuff, right? Um, and I'm really hoping that we can establish a culture of more people doing more than what is required of them, doing more than what is expected of them. And I agree fully with Tabang um, that, you know, not, not precisely that we need to prove a point to any race or we need to prove a point to anyone that we're capable. Um, I mean, all throughout the years, even centuries before our own, we've seen a, a whole lot of black people doing some amazing things, right? Um, influence culture and traditions all over the world, um, build some of the first universities on the continent. The history is there, right? Um, and I think what we need to do now is just, just to revitalize the confidence of black people and remind them that, you know, you are able to do stuff. Uh, more things than than your oppressors and 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 um your 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 so-called slave masters thought that you could do. And I think that that is a message that needs to transcend in all spheres. Be it you are working in retail, be it you are working on a farm, be it you're an educator, be it you are a financial accountant, be it you are a politician, doesn't matter. Right? All of us need to exercise excellence in all the work that we do. By exercising excellence, far more than just showing other races and other groups of people that you know we're making something work we'll be able to influence our own people um to see that you know even if you don't have access to things in your community you can start your own things you can build your own stuff right um because we can cry all we want about the malls that have been looted and the malls that have been burned i've saw now in the news that you know there's that whole conversation uh, that sasria is not is not um does not cover political and civil unrest, uh, terms and conditions apply everywhere, right? But, you know, given the culture of South Africa and given how, how um, white monopoly capital and how white business work, I don't think that that is a conversation that is even going to get anywhere. I think that those insurance payouts are most probably going to pay out. Those malls are probably going to get built. Some form of employment is still going to be created for some of our people. Um, but beyond that, you know, if, if we don't introduce deliberate structural change and structural reform, we're always going to have conversations of this nature. Nothing's ever, it's ever really going to change. So I'm really hoping that we reach a point where we have a government um, that is that is not two-faced, that is not confusing to its people, that does not promise one thing and then give another. I was extremely shocked when I saw um the EFF go and and give support to Jacob Zuma and you know I'm sure a whole lot of the supporters were like what the hell is going on what is this right you were calling for this man to resign calling for him to be nailed and now you're saying that you're supporting him so I'm really hoping that we reach a point where we have honest decisive um leadership in the country that that really speaks on 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 the behalf of of not only the majority of the people but you know everyone needs to enjoy the benefits of having a democratic um, country and, and living in a democracy and, and you know yeah i appreciate that uh sydney i think just to summarize and we've spoken about covid 
the effects of, before you joined, we spoke about COVID, the effects on the economy, the balance between the two, um, just starvation and also just issues around violence. And I think we've covered a lot. And I mean, I swear, if you saw all the other questions I have, there was questions about the education system, elections, and classism as Black people. So there are a lot of questions that I, I, this conversation could go on for the whole day. And then actually, this morning, I realized I could have had two different panels and I had almost 20 people wanted to join. Uh, but I think each of us at least have contributed as much. And I really appreciate that each of you guys are contributing a lot on an individual level. And that's why I wanted to at least end the conversation on that aspect because I know each of you are doing something on your individual capacity to contribute to society in a greater large scheme. Um, even Bali, unfortunately, she left. She has a, her and her sister have an NGO called NS Impact and they do backpacks for children in school. And I mean, she did a whole campaign with DJ Zentley and so forth. So, I mean, each of you have different things that you're doing, whether it's political, individually, um, even like Taban with his channel and education and reading and stuff. So, I mean, those kind of things do play a role in impacting people. So each of you are truly doing something that is at least empowering others. So I really appreciate that um, beyond the issues that we are seeing on a, on a community level, individually see young Black people doing things. So I really appreciate that about each of us. Uh, but I hope that more conversations spy out of this and each even beyond the podcast in our own circles, these conversations continue like Sydney said. Uh, but for the sake of time, I really appreciate uh, all of you for joining. Unfortunately, I, sister, some of the sisters let me down. I had a sister who owns a spaza shop. I wanted her to join, and I guess network is an issue. But uh, yeah, it will seem like a Father's Day. But uh, I still appreciate each of you joining. Uh, so yeah, but do enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'm going to edit the podcast. Then I'll just let you guys know when everything's up. Uh, usually it takes about the end of today. Then you'll see everything up and running. Uh, but I appreciate you guys for joining me. And yeah, we'll look forward to more conversations. But do enjoy the rest of the It has fought in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack 